Well, good morning. Um, it's good to be with you. It's good to uh, be able to preach for you today. It's um, yeah. Mike asked me a couple weeks ago to fill in for him, so I was certainly happy to do so and uh, spend some time with you. I am one of the uh, pastors at uh, Grace Life Church, and uh, I regularly preach, so I'm. Uh, this is the sermon that I preached uh, for our church, Grace Life Church, uh, about a month ago. I think it's a month ago. You know, time goes fast, and the summer's been gone really fast. So I hope it'll be a blessing to you today, and um, I guess I send you greetings from our church. I guess we've had a bunch of our pastors out here. James has been out here. Uh, Jake's been out here. So I've been out here. You guys had a, a summer full of Grace Life preachers today, this year, so... Uh, I'm glad to be able to be here too. Well, before we get into text, I want to get into a bit of our a background of our text here. This is it was a bit of a rags to riches story. In his early days, he worked on his farmer, uh, father's farm, taking care of sheep. And then in his youth, he committed a great brave act, a feat of military arms, by which he got the attention of the whole nation. He uh, began in the army and led the army from to victory after victory. And not, he was not just the general, eventually he became the king. Because after the king died, he arose to become king. And after a bitter, bitter civil war, he brought unity to the nation. He then conquered other nations around and brought peace and prosperity to his country. He grew rich and powerful. He was also the religious leader of his people. He wrote songs of praise to his God. And he led the people in worship. He stood out as a man of great devotion to God, a man respected by others. And yet he fell, tragically fell. He gave way to his uncontrollable lusts, and led, which led to adultery. He committed adultery with one of his loyal and famous soldiers. And to hide the sin that he had committed because of pregnancy, he had his famous soldier uh, killed. The king that everybody would have respected was now a murderer and adulterer, a man worthy of death. And yet this man, who was known for such great devotion to God, buried his guilt for, for almost a year until God came with a prophet and confronted him with his sin. Maybe as I'm going through this introduction here and describing this, this, uh, this story here, you, you know what I'm referring to. You're, I'm referring to King David. This is the story of King David. And you can find the, the sad record of this uh, man's fall in 2 Samuel 11 to 12, which is really the background to the psalm that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Psalm 51, and, and this is the background to that psalm. 
And if you remember when Nathan came to, to David and confronted him with his sin, David confessed his sin, didn't he? He confessed, I have sinned against Yahweh. And you remember God's promise to David at that moment, I have forgiven your sin, you shall not die. And so Psalm 51 was probably written very soon after that initial confession. And, and everything's fresh in David's mind. The sin that he's committed, the adultery, the murder, the guilt that oppressed him, his burdened conscience was all very fresh in his mind. And so this psalm has that flavor. There's a, a rawness to this. There's a, a passion, intensity. There's a, a, a very honestness. Uh, there's, a, there's a sorrow, a deep grief that comes out in this psalm. And that's sort of even indicated in how the psalm is, is structured. There's a lot of imperatives, a lot of prayers, quick, quick prayers that David cries out to God, which shows the intensity of his soul at that moment. And so this is the kind of psalm we're going to be looking at today. And before we get into it, we're going to read the psalm. So if you can, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard uh, Bible. And we'll read the psalm together. Notice the heading there. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden parts you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach sinners, or teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For I do not delight, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Before we dig in to this psalm, just a little bit about some of the context and the structure of the psalm. This really is a, a poetic manual about 
confessing our sins and, and, and repentance. And I think it's important before we begin this psalm to recognize that David is praying this psalm. He's praying um, not for salvation. He, this, David is a redeemed man. He is born again. He, is, he has salvation. He's not praying here, repenting for salvation. He's praying for a restoration of his relationship with God. You see, repentance is the gateway by which we obtain God's salvation. When we first repent, we are repenting of a whole life of rebellion against God, repenting of all of our sin, and that's the entrance by which we get into that's, um, the new life in Christ. Because we're born again, we repent. And the thing is, as we go through the Christian life, we continue to repent, and we, and we don't do that because we need to regain our salvation all the time. We continue to repent because we want to be restored to the fellowship that we have with God. Because sin breaks our fellowship with God. Especially when a sin that we've committed is, is more serious and it bothers our conscience and it weighs down on us and we know the guilt of it. And, and when that happens, we need to confess those sins. We need to repent of those sins so we can be restored to fellowship with God. And this psalm here gives us a model to follow. This psalm teaches us what that repentance looks like. What does God require of us when we do sin, when our conscience are bothered? How do we obtain forgiveness? How do we obtain restoration? How can we be restored to God? And this psalm really answers all those questions. It, it gives us a, a great model of, of what repentance looks like. I mean, David's sin was great. And so David's repentance also was great. And a great example for us as well. And so whether you need to repent for the first time or whether you have repented many times, this psalm teaches you what real repentance looks like. And so our structure is going to be fairly simple here. We have three, three points, three kind of phases of this psalm. The first is in verses nine, 1 to 9, and there's David's plea for forgiveness. And in verse 10 to 12, we see David's prayer for restoration. And then in verses 13 to 19, David's proper response of gratitude. So we're going to see how David goes from praying for forgiveness confessing his sin, praying for confessing his guilt. Then he moves to praying for uh, a restoration. And then David goes on to, to confessing his proper response to gratitude, how he's going to respond because of God's forgiveness. So hopefully you can see how David moves through the psalm here. We're going to go through the psalm fairly quickly. And even as I say that, um, it is a long psalm, and so uh, we will uh, be trying to go through it, giving you the sense of it. Hopefully, you'll have a good overview of how this psalm works and the flow of the psalm. So we're first going to look at David's plea for forgiveness. Notice verse 1 there. If you will, take your Bibles there. You can see verse 1. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. And here we see David confessing the basis of forgiveness. David begins by pleading for God's forgiveness, by appealing to God's merciful and gracious character. 
He knows this is the basis. This is the ground for his forgiveness. So mercy and grace is, is really God's undeserved favor. And you notice what David doesn't do here. David doesn't appeal to God's wisdom or God's justice or God's righteousness or God's power for in asking for forgiveness. He appeals to God's mercy. Notice also he doesn't appeal to his own righteous deeds. He doesn't go to God, oh God, you know, remember that time when I slew Goliath and cut off his head and defeated your enemies. Or, or remember that time, oh God, when, when I brought the ark to Jerusalem and, and everybody rejoiced. He doesn't go back on looking at his own life. He doesn't use that as the grounds by which he appeals for grace. David appeals for God's grace because he knows that he deserves judgment. He has no right. He has no um, reason why he should come to God and ask for this. He knows all that he deserves is, is death. A good story to illustrate this is found um, in the life of Napoleon Bonaparte, the French emperor. Hopefully you remember Napoleon from history. And um, a story here about a mother. And this mother uh, once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't, but I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, It would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. And in the same way, when we go to God for forgiveness, when we go to God for mercy, we have no right to be there based upon our own performance. We we understand that simply an act God's forgiveness is simply an act of his grace, his mercy. Notice David's plea here for for mercy, for grace, is based on God's character. And he mentions that. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, be merciful to me because of who you are, because of your loving kindness, which is God's unfailing covenant love towards his people. To his compassion, to his pity, to his great affection for his people. Notice he mentions the word greatness there. God's love and God's compassion are great. Which is good, isn't it? Because our sins are often very great. And we need a God of great compassion, a great, of great mercy, so that he can forgive our great sins. And really, there's enough mercy and grace in God for all forgi- for forgiveness. Even the most wicked sinner can come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness because his mercies are great. And so David's only hope, his only plea is that God would be moved by his loyal love to him, by his compassion and forgive him. Next, David moves on from there to confess the, the seriousness of his sin. And you'll see there in the next section, uh, 1b verse, verse 2 there, 
uh, David seeks God's forgiveness for his sin. And, and as he does that, he uses basically three expressions to describe what he wants and then three uh, words to describe sin, which highlight to us that sin, David understands how serious sin is and how serious we should take sin. Notice what it says there. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So first there, we see blot out. The, the idea there is to wipe out, to erase, uh, writing from a scroll, to be something to be removed from the record. Then the next expression there is wash me. And it has the picture of somebody washing clothes by scrubbing them. And, and maybe you still do this, I don't know, or maybe this is something uh, your grandparents would have done where they take their dirty clothes in a big uh, bucket and they have like a washboard and they take those clothes and they scrub them and they scrub them clean. Well, that's kind of the idea here. David is asking God to wash him clean, to scrub him clean so there's nothing, there's no sin or stain left. Uh, the, there's the word cleanse me from my sin. The, the word cleanse has the idea of purify me or to make me ceremonially clean so that I can be fit and clean again to worship God. And then David uses three words to describe sin. He uses the first word there, transgressions. The, the word, the idea with behind that word there is that of crimes, uh, rebellion. It describes sin as a, as a rejection of God's authority. Sin, all sin, is really rebellion against God. It's lifting up your hand and, and, and defying God by your behavior. And then there's iniquity. That's the idea of perversion or crooked behavior. It, it also has the included in there the idea of guilt that comes from that. Sin is a perversion from God's law. And then there's sin. The word sin there is to, to miss the mark. It's to fail to live up to God's holy standard. And so by using all these expressions and by using all these different words, David is, is saying he's guilty of rebellion. He's, he's guilty of perversion. He's defiled. He's dirty. He's unclean. He's unfit to come before God. David is being honest about his sin here. He's not whitewashing it. He's agreeing with God about what his sin really is. He, do, he calls sin for what it is. He doesn't relabel sin as some disorder. He doesn't call it just a bad choice. He made a bad choice. No, he calls it rebellion. He doesn't just say it's a mistake I made. He says it's something perverse. It's not just, oh, it's a character flaw of mine. No, this is a re- an act of defiance against God. David understood the seriousness of his sin and he calls it for what it is. He understands the sinfulness of sins. And that's why he prays so earnestly and urgently for forgiveness. And what makes sin so evil and defiling? Well, that comes out in the, the next verses there. Verses four, 3 and 4. Here David confesses the true nature of sin. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David here is expressing that he can't escape from his guilty conscience. 
It haunts him like a ghost. It goes everywhere with him. When he wakes up, he's confronted with his sin. When he goes to sleep, he's confronted with his sin. When he eats, he's seeing his sin. His guilty conscience bothers him. When he's working, when he, wherever he's doing, it follows him around like an unwanted guest. There's great power in a defiled conscience, and David feels that. He's oppressed by it. It surrounds him. It never seems to leave him. And why does his sin bother him so much? I mean, is David just worried about the consequences of his sin? Is he just worried maybe people won't like him as a king anymore? Or, you know, maybe somebody will topple him from the throne? Or, or whatever other consequences there could be from his sin? No, he's not. His sin troubles him and his sin grieves him because his sin is an offense against the God he loves. And that's what really primarily bothers him. And you can see that there in verse 4. Notice what it says there. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You may look at that and say, well, David did sin against other people, didn't he? I mean, there was Uriah and, and then there was Bathsheba and then there was really the whole nation of Israel. Is David denying that he sinned against others? No, he's not. But he's saying that primarily he has sinned against God. Because we need to understand that when we sin, we're not breaking necessarily other people's laws. Sin is defined by God, by God's law. Sin is wrong because it breaks God's standard. And God sets the standard. God's character and God's law define to us what sin is. It's not man's standards that define what's wrong or right. It's God who does it. And when we sin, we're breaking ultimately the lawgiver, God himself, his his laws. And we could say this, that sin is so bad because God is so good and so great. And that's what brings David grief. He has sinned against the God he loves. He has sinned against the God who has given him so much grace and mercy. He has rebelled against one who was so compassionate and kind to him. And he, 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 it bothers him, it troubles him, and he wants to be restored in that relationship to his God. And David, then in the next section here, confesses really the full responsibility, he confesses full responsibility for his sin. Notice what it says there, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And you could translate this verse like this. I say this, or I confess this. So I confess all my sins so, so, so that people will know that you are right, God. That you are just in all you do. That I am guilty. I'm confessing everything so that you are shown to be right and good in what you do. David understands that God is blameless in whatever he would do to David. David accepts from God all any consequences that God would bring on him. And, and if you know the story in 2 Samuel, you'll know that because David's sin was so great, there were some pretty severe consequences, wasn't there? David's infant son was, was died. David's uh, other sons rebelled against him. One of his, two of his sons died. Remember the Absalom's revolt and, and the armies that, that were toppled David from the throne for a short time? And really for the rest of David's life, 
David faced the discipline of God for his sin. David, for the rest of his life, faced the consequences for his sins. That's pretty serious. And yet David here isn't praying that God would take away the consequences of his sin. He's not concerned about that. He understands that God has the right to punish him in any way he chooses because he recognizes the seriousness of his sin. You'll notice in all of this confession here, there are no excuses for his sin. David doesn't blame his father and mother for their bad parenting. He doesn't shift blame to anybody else. He doesn't blame his circumstances. He doesn't blame his weak constitution. He doesn't blame his his background. He doesn't blame the fact that he had a bad sleepless night or he ate some food that didn't sit well with him. He doesn't blame the devil, does he? He doesn't blame anybody but himself. And David here takes full responsibility for his sin. You see, and David goes beyond that, though. David goes beyond just saying, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this sin. I've, I've sinned. I confess that sin. But he's, he's saying that I've sinned. He's going to confess that he's actually, his sin comes from within him. That he is a sinner by nature. And so David here confesses then in the verse 5, the source of his sin. Verse 5 there, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David isn't saying here, well, you know, my mother was immoral, and that's why I have done all these bad things. Really what he's confessing here is that from the moment he was conceived, he was a sinful person. He had a sinful human nature. He was infected by sin from the very beginning. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. The fact that all of us have received from Adam a sinful human nature from the very moment we were conceived. It's a a human nature that's corrupt, that's bent on doing what's evil, that's a human heart that's wicked. And we, we can see this in our children, right? If you have children, you understand this very well. When our, your children are born, you don't have to teach them to do bad, right? You don't have to teach them to be selfish. You don't have to teach them to bop their sister or brother over the head to get their, what they want. They, they do that quite naturally. You have to teach them to do what's good. And that's because all of us are born with a corrupt, sinful human nature that's bent on doing sin. It's our, our, we're good at it. It's natural to us. And so David brings up his corrupt human nature to emphasize his own evil depravity. You see, it's not like David's saying, you know, I was living such a good life and I was doing so good and then suddenly this, this sin, this temptation came and it was like, oh man, I sinned and, and uh, what a, it was a big slip up. It was just a blunder. Uh, you know, my life's been so good and it just, this was just a kind of a rare occasion where I, I blundered. And no, he's saying that sin, that that sin that, that I did came from a sinful heart. It came from that sinful nature. My, the sin didn't make him a sinner. because He sinned because he was a sinner. And you can look at Romans 5 to, to see a full treatment of the doctrine of original sin. 
You know, and it's true that David and all who are Christians are, are born again. We have a, the old heart of stone has been taken out. A, a new heart of flesh has been put in us. And so we are born again. We are new pe- pe- creations in Christ. David as well. And yet there's still a remnant of that old sinful nature within us. That's what we call often in the New Testament the flesh. And that flesh is that remaining part that is what causes us to sin. It's the root of our sin problem. And David understood that. It came from within, and he knew that. Next, in verse 6, David confesses his failure in godliness. Verse 6 says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. This verse is a, a contrast to the previous verse. You'll notice how the both verses, verse 5 and verse 6, begin with behold. Or the idea of just take notice. You know, so the verse 5 is saying, take notice, God. Take notice on how corrupt I am from birth. And then when you get to verse 6, there's another behold. Behold. What, take notice what God's requirements are. God requires faithfulness to truth and wisdom. And David knows he didn't live up to that standard. And he confesses that. He confesses that God desired holiness in the heart. And that's not how he is. He knows that there is corruption within him. And then that leads to verse 7 there, where David confesses his need for for purity and renewal. It says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And when, when you pray uh, for forgiveness, do you pray, purify me with hyssop? I uh, Probably not. Do you, do you wonder why David is asking God to purify him with hyssop? Why does David pray like this? Well, David is obviously thinking about the Old Testament. He's thinking about the Old Testament law. So what about hyssop? Why why does he mention hyssop in this prayer? Well, hyssop is a a plant that grows in a big bush, and it has lots of hairy kind of stems. And they would take some of these stems, and they'd put them together, and they would use them kind of like a paintbrush. And hyssop was used in Exodus 12 to paint the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. Hyssop was used in Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19 there for the purification process of a leper. And then in Hebrews 9 verse 9, it talks about how hyssop was used to to sprinkle the blood of the covenant on the people when Moses made the the Mosaic covenant with uh, God's people Israel. And so you see, hyssop is used to purify. Hyssop is used to um, in sacrifices. It's used to apply that, the, the, sac, the, the, the blood and the, the purification ceremonies. And so with, when he mentions hyssop, David is referring to this purification ceremonies. He wants to be pure. He wants to be clean. James Montgomery Boyce says something helpful about this. He says, when David asked that God cleanse him from, with hyssop, he meant, cleanse me by the blood. Forgive me and regard me as clean 
are cleansed on the basis of the innocent victim that has died. And so while here today as New Covenant Christians, we won't pray, you know, purify me with hyssop. Instead, we would pray more like purify me by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, right? We would appeal to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. And so David earnestly desires that all of the stains of his sin, his defiled conscience, would be removed. He wants to be whiter than snow, as it says there. And this earnest desire to be purified and cleansed comes out in the next uh, two verses there. And he uses different pictures, different expressions to express his earnest desire for forgiveness. He says, make me, know, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. David wants, in summary, to, to leave his spiritual depression behind. He wants to hear joy and gladness again. He wants to have the physical effects of his sin to be removed. He wants to be cleansed, to be, to be, have the removal of his guilt before God. And when we, when you hear all this, when you hear these verses here and you see how David has responded to his sin, how David has confessed his sin, is this how you confess your sin? Is this how you repent when you're confronted with your sin? Do you understand, do you call sin what it really is? Do you understand how serious it is? Do you understand you have no right on any merit of your own to come before God for forgiveness? Do you realize, do you take full responsibility when you sin and confess that to God without blaming other people or about blaming circumstances? Do you confess sin like David does? These are some serious questions to consider because repentance is one of the primary means by which we grow in holiness. As we continue to repent of sin, God uses that to change us and sanctify us. And he obviously then restores to us the joy of our salvation. And we enjoy the fellowship with God that we can't have when we sin. So let me encourage you today. To repent like this. John, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, When we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May that encourage you today. When you sin, if you have a sin that you know you need to confess before God, confess it today. God will forgive the sinner who comes humbly to him seeking his forgiveness. And so we've considered David's prayer for forgiveness. But David isn't just interested in blotting out the stain of his sin or getting rid of the guilt. He wants to return to a life of godliness, to enjoy the spiritual health and joy that comes from a righteous life. And so we come to the next section here, David's prayer for restoration. You know, the devil promises you that when you sin... It will bring you joy. It will bring you fulfillment. It will bring you happiness. But the devil lies to you. Sin always brings loss. It always brings grief. It always brings destruction. It always brings disappointment. And so here David prays to be restored. 
to obedience, service, and joy. David has lost these things because of his sin, and now he wants to be restored in them. So first he wants to be restored to faithful obedience. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We see repentance is more than just seeking forgiveness. Repentance is turning away from sin, but it's also then turning to righteousness, to stop doing what's wrong and to start doing what's right. Because David hates his sin and he loves righteousness, he wants to return to a life of righteousness. Notice what it says there, create in me a clean heart, O God. The word create there is a very interesting word. It's used in Genesis 1.1 for God creating the heavens and the earth. And whenever this word is used to create, it's used of God doing something that only God can do. And so David knows he can't change his own heart. He can't create within him new desires and holy aspirations. He's asking God to do what he can't do himself. And so David pleads that God would create those holy desires within his heart again. He wants a heart that's faithful in obedience, a heart that is steadfast in righteousness. And see, David also knows that his sin of adultery and murder didn't begin in the, the act of adultery or the act of murder. That sin began long before in the heart in the desires of the heart, in the, the, the lusts of the heart. And so David knows that the problem is not just his outward actions, it's within me. It's in me that's the problem. And so he prays that God would change within him. And it's not, a, it reminds us again, it's not enough just for us to do what's right. We must our, our thinking, our motivations, our aspirations, our, our emotions all need to be transformed and become godly. And so David pleads for God to transform him within him, his own heart. And then in verse 11, David prays for restored service. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, especially that last phrase, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, has, has, been a, has generated a lot of discussion, a lot of dispute. And I think the problem for many people is if you don't understand the, the difference as you go from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the time before Pentecost, the time after Pentecost, and if you don't see those differences and how the Spirit works, uh, you have a difficulty with this verse. Because you may be tempted to go, you know, in the New Testament, it says that uh, Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is a, given as a pledge of our inheritance. And so, and then you know, think of other passages. We talk about the Holy Spirit being the, the guarantee of our salvation. And we know then, well, it's, it's the Holy Spirit is given to us and we can't lose the Holy Spirit. And, and if, um, we can't lose our salvation because the Holy Spirit guarantees that we will finally be glorified. And so you can read this and go, well, does David have bad theology? Does, is David saying here that he's going to lose his salvation because of his sin? And I think it's helpful then to understand the context that the, David finds himself in. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would often come upon certain individuals like kings or judges, 
to enable them to perform a certain task. It was a temporary empowerment for service. And often the judges would be, be um, the spirit would come upon them to deliver God's people. And as David is, David's probably also thinking about Saul, King Saul and his downfall. You remember King Saul, he started out so good and then he kind of drifted off into disobedience and rebellion against God. And uh, because of that, God said, you know, Saul, uh, we're going to take the kingdom away from you. Your dynasty is not going to last. And so David then is then anointed as the next king and Saul is rejected. And um, it's interesting, if you look at 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David when he was anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord then left Saul at that same time. And when that happened to Saul, Saul continued, you know, began, began a, a downward spiral, which ended in, in consulting a witch and, and suicide. And so as David's thinking about his sin, which was really, when you think about it, much worse than what Saul ever did. As David's thinking about that, he's thinking, you know, look what happened to Saul. And he's praying that God would not do that to him as well. He was praying that God would continue to empower him to be king for Israel. And God didn't. God didn't take the kingdom away from David. God allowed David to be king over his people still. And why was that? Well, God had made a covenant with David, right? God had made a promise to David and said that your seed will sit on the throne forever. Because of that promise, God allowed David to continue to reign as king, even though David should have been removed as king. And as New Testament believers, we wouldn't pray exactly in the same way, but we pray in the same kind of vein. Let me explain that. We wouldn't pray that, God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from us. We would pray, God, restore me. Restore me to, to service in your kingdom. Allow me to continue to serve you again, God. So David prays for restored service, renewed service. Then verse 12, he prays for joy. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. You see, David's sin brought the loss of joy, the joy of salvation, His unconfessed sin took away the joy that he had in his God. And David wants that to be restored back to him. You see, unconfessed sin brings loss. It'll sully your righteous character. It'll hinder your service to God. It'll bring grief and sorrow. Unconfessed sin is like a vacuum. It sucks out of you all your spiritual life and leaves you on the spiritual life support. It has a huge impact on your life and a huge impact on the church. Consider if you have a whole church filled with people who have unconfessed sin in their hearts, what the impact of that will be. And I'll just say this, though, that when we talk about unconfessed sin, we're not talking about every sin, like if you sin, that every time you sin that, uh, and you never confess it, that God punishes you. For that, or, or disciplines for the, you for that. What we're talking about here is sin that you have committed that weighs on your guilty, weighs on your conscience. That 
bothers you and, and, give, and you know is wrong, and yet you hide it, and you don't confess it, and you, you don't um, repent of that sin. And this is a warning then if, of continuing in unrepentant sin. When you sin and you know you've sinned, confess it right away. Confess it right, go to God right away in prayer and confess that sin. Don't wait. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow and and continue its destructive course in your life. Confess your sin right away when you know you've sinned. And God will restore you and God will forgive you. We come to the last section here, David's proper response of gratitude. David received God's mercy and forgiveness. He, God had promised that to him right away. What was David's response to that? What was David's response to forgiveness and mercy? Well, it's four things here we see. Evangelism, we see praise, we see true worship, and we see intercession. And in this whole section, David moves away from himself now. And he moves towards his, a response of love towards God and towards other people. And first we see his love for other people, evangelism, that he, he promises that he will do. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. David vows to teach sinners about God's ways of forgiveness, mercy, grace, and righteousness. David has known by experience that God is a God of great mercy, great forgiveness. He knows the joy that comes when you, he confesses his sins and God forgives him. He knows that. He's experienced that. And he wants others to know. He wants others to hear about it. He wants others to have that same joy and forgiveness of sins that he experienced. And so he vows here, he promises here that he's going to tell other people that God is a God of forgiveness and that they can find mercy and grace in him. And he has confidence in that. He says they will, and sinners will be converted to you. And in some sense, this psalm, Psalm 51, is, uh, is been used by God to, to fulfill that prayer. Psalm 51 has been such a blessing in the life of the church. And God has used it many times to bring sinners to salvation. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says this, those who have experienced sweet forgiveness make the best evangelists. And then David goes on to say how he vows to praise God. Verse 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Notice here he prays again for forgiveness. He seems, again, he's concerned that he, about his sin, it bothers him. Notice how he gets more specific here, blood guiltiness. What do you think that refers to? It's referring to the death, the murder of Uriah. And again, he says, save me from that guilt. Save me from that sin. Blot it out. Cleanse me from that. So that I can praise God again. You know, David was the great hymn writer of Israel. He wrote so many songs. He, had, he was a great musician as he used his harp and his music to praise God with God's people and for God's people. And yet, while he hid his sin, 
there's a sense where he couldn't really truly praise God because he was hiding such a that unconfessed sin. And so he prays now that his tongue would be loosened and he would be able to praise God for his righteousness, for his goodness. You know, praise is always sweetest and loudest for those who rightly understand their own depravity and the grace and, 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 and forgiveness of God. And next, David goes on to, to true worship. David has learned something very important about worship throughout this whole experience. Verse 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You know, as you read this, you might be tempted to say, well, maybe God, you know, as David's saying, God doesn't, didn't want sacrifices at all. Well, no, it's not true. I mean, God is the one who instituted sacrifices for Israel. And he gave them the sacrificial system to teach them important spiritual truths. But sacrifices are not what God really wanted. God doesn't need a bull or a goat. God primarily wanted the, the proper heart response. And David had spent so much of the last number of months as a hypocritical worshiper, worshiping God maybe with his people, and yet at the same time he's he has unconfessed sin, serious sin, that he will not confess to God. And he realizes again that real worship is not just an external right. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just showing up to do the right things on, on a, at the tabernacle or at the sacrifice, sacrificial altar. He understood that real worship begins in the heart. And he knows the kind of sacrifices that God delights in. He delights in a broken and spirit and a contrite heart. This is a heart where pride has been broken down, where self-will has been crushed. It's a heart that's distressed over its sin. It's a heart that's been humbled, bowed low in a sad state. It's a heart that's ready to do God's will. This is a broken and contrite heart. And God loves that sacrifice. When you bring that kind of heart, that attitude towards God, God delights in it. He loves that sweet-smelling offering of your heart. And God will joyfully accept that sacrifice and forgive the sinner who comes with a broken and contrite heart. And even in this, this whole little piece here reminds us that David's prayers will be heard because David exemplifies in this whole psalm what a broken and contrite heart looks like. And he knows that who God is. He knows that God delights to show mercy to the brokenhearted. The last thing that David mentions he will do here is intercession. Verse 18 and 19. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. And you may wonder, well, why does David go from, you know, uh, speaking about himself and, and what his response are to now praying for God's people? Why would he pray for God's people because of his sin? Well, if you know your Old Testament, especially like the book of Kings, you know that the condition of the nation Israel was often very much tied to the condition of the king. If the king was good, uh, it tended to make the nation better. 
And if the king failed spiritually, the nation often failed spiritually. And so David is looking at his life. He's looking. He just committed murder. He just committed adultery. He knows that that could have a great impact on the nation. And so now at the end of here, this psalm here, he prays for the nation, that the nation would not be seriously affected by his sin. And so in, 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 this, in this verse here, he prays both for the, the spiritual welfare of the nation and also the physical, the material welfare of the nation. He wants God to do good to his people. He wants them, he wants God to protect them against, make them strong so that they can resist their enemies, build the walls of Jerusalem. He's praying that God would give Jerusalem strength, protect Jerusalem from her enemies. And then as verse 19 alludes to, he want, he prays that in God doing good, that that would lead to a spiritual flourishing in Israel. That Israel, the whole nation would offer to God right sacrifices. That the whole nation would give to God a broken and contrite heart. Notice it talks about even that they would bring bowls as offerings to God. Bowls would be the, the most expensive offering that Israel, that the Israelites could bring, which suggests that there's a, a great overflow of thankfulness. And what you hear is, what you hear, see David praying for is that the whole nation, instead of being harmed by David's sin, would be, as they observe his repentance, as they observe um, God's forgiveness towards him, that the whole nation would be led to follow in David's example, to follow in David's repentance. And that the whole nation would prosper both spiritually, nationally, materially. And so here we have David's response to his forgiveness. And this is really the response that God desires from all of us. God's, when, if God has forgiven such a great debt to us, and if you're a Christian here, you have been forgiven a unpayable debt, there should be a, a proper response David's response should be your response. You know, are you involved in telling other people about the gospel? You have been given such a great gift of forgiveness and grace. Tell that to other people. Tell other people about the mercy in Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody or handed out a tract to somebody? Does your gratitude for your for forgiveness come out in praise and worship? Are you joyfully singing along with God's people? Do you are you praying for the spiritual good of other people? When you sin, do you offer up to God a, a, the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart? When we sin and repent of it, it should increase and multiply our praise, our worship, our obedience. It should be, we should have a greater heart, a greater, the the overflow of our heart should be full of thankfulness and praise and worship. You know, this is a great psalm to, uh, to study, to think about before we go to the Lord's Supper. 
You know, David, as he appeals for the promise of forgiveness, he, he knew that somehow God would forgive him. He knew that God had promised forgiveness. And he trusted that promise that eventually God would accomplish salvation for him. But David didn't know how. But you and I do, don't we? We, ha- we have the fulfillment of the promise of forgiveness. We know that David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to, to die on the cross, to suffer the guilt and punishment that we deserved on our behalf so that we could go free. We, we know how God accomplished our salvation. And so as we think about this psalm and we consider what God has done for us, um, it's a great psalm to lead us into the Lord's Supper. This is a meal for a t- and a time for celebrating Jesus Christ, our Savior. And before we do that, let's, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for its convicting truths. We thank you for the promises even in here where it shows that you are a God who loves to forgive sinners, a God who delights in a broken and contrite heart. Lord, I pray for all of us here that when we sin, that we would repent quickly, that we would repent completely, that we would repent as David has repented here, that we would know the blessedness and joy that comes from true confession of sin and true repentance, Lord. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper here, we pray that you would just bless it to our souls, Lord, as we think about Jesus Christ. So thank you for your word here. Pray that you would use it, Lord, in in the life of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.